Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. And from Atlanta, Georgia, I am Kurt Dupuis. So we've got Dr. Martin Kramers on the show. That might ring a bell for a few people, uh, particularly folks that are, I don't want to say nerdy, Kurt, but into the weeds on investment selection. He wrote a paper called Active Share. I guess, what was it? The mid-2000s it came out? I forget the original date. I, I think it was 09-ish. Yeah, it was. Anyways, he came out with a paper in the mid 2000s on active share that was really kind of paradigm shifting, game changing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Since then, he's had subsequent research, you know, on active management and what really matters. And it really did challenge the basic conclusions uh, that were out there that active management just doesn't work. Yeah. And that's always ironic to me because you read news headlines and you see how prevalent ETFs are, you know, active is dead, all this money going to passive. But anecdotally, I don't know what your experience is, is I talk to financial professionals every day and there's not much consensus around that. A lot of financial professionals still believe in active. They want active. And I mean, if anyone has ever talked about active share, which I see on more from more and more asset managers, from more and more data companies, Dr. Krimis is the godfather of all that. So it's really his work that that thrust that into the common nomenclature. And so we talk about what the heck that thing is, because even people that say they know what active share is, um, don't really quite have a refined understanding of what it is. I think we probably said it three times in the conversation. It's a starting point. We talked about the pillars of skill, conviction, and opportunity. Those are the characteristics that tend to drive outperformance over the long term. Yeah, patience as well. And I think that's what Kurt just mentioned is the is the utility here. We all kind of know you shouldn't just look at static, backward-looking 1, 3, 5, 10 returns. We know we want to look at that. We want to understand it. But if that's all you're doing, frankly, it's probably not a successful approach. So what should you be looking at? And I think what's so powerful about Dr. Kramer's research is it really gets into things that matter, things that can be predictive. And and it's it, it's these kinds of things that I think could take investment processes to the next level. So the main takeaway here is have a process. So I I just run into all the time, you know, you need your 10 commandments of how and why you invest client capital. I don't particularly care what those 10 commandments are. Just have a process. Side and I do this each and every day is help advisors think and work through kind of an investment discipline. So have a process. If you don't have one, reach out. We're happy to help out or some of our other colleagues, wherever you are in the country, but have a process and active share is as good as any place to start. Absolutely. If you're listening to this, although these are supposed to be evergreen, but we're recording this at the end of of 2022. I just want to thank everyone uh, for you know a great year with this show. I want to thank Kurt, you as well. We crossed 50 episodes this year. We've done this for another oh, that's year. Right. I don't know. It's just, it, it, it seems like an appropriate time uh, to say thanks. So if you could do us one favor, one maybe holiday present is to go in and if you haven't subscribed, if you haven't shared the show, 
I know everyone says this at every podcast, but could you please do that for us? That would be that would be cool. That would be a plus for us. Uh, please do. And without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Martin Kramers. All right. Well, we are very happy to be joined by Dr. Martin Kramers from the the dean of the Notre Dame Business School. Dr. Kramers, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm very grateful for having me. I've known you for a long time. A huge fan of, of your research. I think a lot of folks are. Let's start from the beginning. I think the groundbreaking research that we got to know you uh, for was this concept of active share. What is active share? So active share is a basic tool to assess how differently an actively managed fund is invested from the market from its benchmark. It compares the portfolio weights of the fund to the portfolio weights of its benchmark and then assesses how different is it. Maybe a simple example. So let's take a stock like Amazon. Let's say that the fund invests 3% of its capital in Amazon stock. If the benchmark also has 3% of its capital in Amazon stock, then the um, position of both the fund and the benchmark in Amazon stock is identical. So it's an overlapping weight. So for that particular stock, right, because it's identical, the fund is actually not active in our mind. So then think about all of the stocks that are both in the fund and in the benchmark. So if you sum up all the overlapping positions that are identical, right, in both, and you deduct that from 100%, you have active share. So that's a share that mm. is not overlapping, that is different. An active share can be achieved in a couple of ways. In the example, right, if you invest more than 3% in Apple stock, then any weight above 3% will be an active overweight, which contributes positively to active share. Any weight less than 3%, it's also going to be active position. So again, active share is a very basic tool that allows you to assess how much stock picking does the manager actually do. So you've got this concept of active share. It's measuring how different a manager is from their respective benchmark. Then what? Once you ran the numbers, you sort of looked at all the managers in the universe. What were your general conclusions from that original study? In our original study, which we published in 2009, I wrote that when I was still at Yale University with a co-author who was also at Yale at the time. Um, it was actually the very first paper I actually written. Is that I right? Ever wrote on, on mutual funds? Yes. Okay. Wow. Um, so you you know please uh, be be generous when you read it because again that's the first paper I ever wrote on mutual funds. Okay. So our conclusions were that a lot of funds are not that active, and so when you're looking for a truly active manager. Um, it actually is very worthwhile to look at the active share to make sure that if you're looking for an active manager, that you actually get one. We also found, more generally speaking, that funds with a low active share tended to substantially underperform. And because there are so many, they were actually responsible for the one thing that everyone generally seems to know about actively managed funds, most people are very aware of it, that the average, typical average managed uh, mutual fund uh, has underperformed, you know, if you look at the last yeah, 20, 30 years. Well, that is the case, but it's really driven by the 46% of funds with the lowest active share, right? What we found is a very strong connection between having a low active share and subsequently underperforming your benchmark. 
So that was a big result. And then for the high active share funds, we didn't find strong underperformance. So, so I think our findings on the one hand of, of, of creating a new tool that's very simple, and therefore I hope intuitive, showing that a lot of funds are not that active, and then this relationship with performance, I think, got a lot of people's attention. And I've written uh, probably an, an, uh, an overly large number of subsequent papers um, as a follow-up. Yeah, and that's that's a pretty profound conclusion. And to restate what you just said, we've had this broad conclusion from the from the academic uh, community, if if I could say it, that oh, active management doesn't work, right? You, we talk about the Vanguard studies and things like that. And then, you know, we're ushering in the area of ETFs because why pay for an active manager? And this is not a downside of ETFs. The question that you were looking to answer is, is there value in active management? Because at that point, the answer academically was no. I'm curious of the origins here. Why did you even start down this path? How did you think about this path? Was it simply you were looking at active management and going, you know, this is kind of a heterogeneous sample set. How did this idea come up? What happened was that I still try to do this, but I was reading the Wall Street Journal. And then I, you know, as I still try to do, right, you look at interesting stories in the Wall Street Journal um, and think about, well, is there an interesting academic angle here? There was a really interesting, in my view, Wall Street Journal article where the author was looking at the largest U.S. equity fund in the world at that point in time, which happened to be the Fidelity Magellan Fund. And the article was a debate, really, between a critic of the fund who argued that it was a closet index fund, as it was called. It, would, it argued that the fund was basically extremely similar to its benchmark. And on the other hand, the people who were managing the fund, they argued, no, not at all. We are very different. And they were looking at the traditional measure of active of active management, which is tracking error volatility or short tracking error. So it's the correlation of the difference in returns. So it's tracking error volatility or it's tracking error was low. That was taken as evidence for closet indexing. The fund says, no, it is not closet indexing. We're actually quite active. It's simply uh, because we're so good at risk management, we're so well diversified that you have a low tracking error. And I remember reading this and thinking, why are they debating this? Why just not just look at the two portfolios? Just look yeah. under the hood, look what's in the Fidelity Magellan Fund, look what's in the S&P 500, and see how different they are. And that was my basic intuition. No kidding. Um, and then, you know, of course, we did that together with the co-author, and that's how we cooked up uh, Active Year. I've been at Touchstone nearly six years. We don't talk about tracking error much. We've obviously talked about active share a fair bit. Can you sort of give us definitionally the distinction between tracking error and active share? Yes. So tracking error and active share are two different measures that both try to get at the same idea. Like the idea is how differently invested is the fund relative to its benchmark. Ideally, you could use both of them at the same time. So how are they different? Well, tracking error only looks at returns. Active share only looks at holdings. It's a snapshot in time where you look at what particular point in time, what's in the fund at that same point in time, what is in the benchmark. And because they look at different data, it's actually very um, beneficial to combine them. 
Right? And so in our 2009 paper, we show you how to do that. So you can think of funds with a high active share that may not have a high tracking of volatility if indeed they are well diversified. On the other hand, you may have funds with somewhat low active share that still may have a high tracking of volatility if the fund takes concentrated bets in particular industries or sectors. An example of the latter would be factor investing funds. For example, a momentum fund. So tracking error, vol and, tracking error and active share are two very different measures. They're not that highly correlated. And I think it's, it's useful to understand how both of them um, look for particular funds. So for, with the active share research, to me, the conclusion is if you're going to pay for active management, you want to look for those high active share managers. You want to fish from that pond. Did you have any conclusions about uh, tracking error? Not really. We didn't find any strong association between tracking error and, um, and, and performance. Got it. Your point, though, about expenses is, is quite important. Right, is that I like to say that there's no issue at all for a fund to have a low active share, as long as its expensive expenses are very low. Right. The issue really comes only in terms of if you have a combination of a fund with a with a low active share and high expenses. A framework that Side and I talk about a lot, uh, probably in life, but definitely in financial services, is signal versus noise. Right. We have a, a lot of research in the asset management world coming from academia. Why did this have such a big impact in the industry as kind of a signal indicator and something that people should pay attention to? On the one hand, I think active share uh, became widely used because it's such a simple tool. Okay. On the other hand, more practically speaking, what happened was early on, the major data providers like Morningstar and FactSet started to, to incorporate um, ActiShare into, in, their data, uh, in their data products. Right? So that led to you know, a lot of attention as well. The other thing that happened early on was that truly active managers, they now with ActiShare had a new tool to explain to, uh, to the world that they were substantially different than, um, than the market. And so the combination of, of, of that, I think, led to ActiShare being... Um, is somewhat, I think, basic tool for investments, uh, for investment analysis. Active share is the starting point. Like it, it's a yes. really good starting point, but it's it's one crucial early input. You've done a lot of research since then of other characteristics that tend to to drive um, outperformance. G can you talk about some of those other inputs? Yes, and and great points. Right? Active share is is only ever really a starting point. For example, active share is not at all a measure of skill. Are they any good? <laughs> yeah. If you look at high active share funds as a group, you'll see a lot of dispersion in performance in that group. If you're looking for an active manager, presumably you, you, sh you would be looking at a, at a fund that at least has high active share. But you need a lot more right, to be um, successful in the long term. So the framework that I use to explain how I think about what managers need to be successful in the long term is what I call the three pillars framework. So managers need skill, conviction, and opportunity. ActiShare is related to each of these three, but doesn't directly measure uh, any of them. Right? 
So skill um, is multifaceted. Both skill and active share tend to be persistent over time. We find a strong relationship between um, the ability of a manager to repeat strong past performance and active share. It's called positive performance persistence. That positive performance persistence is much more likely for managers with a high active share. But then mm. that high active share managers as a group are much more likely to, to be able to repeat strong past performance uh, into the future. The second thing that managers need, they also need a strong conviction. Right? Even if you have skill to identify good investment opportunities, you still need to have a certain courage of one convictions uh, to do so persistently. What, what I also am after here is the notion that to be successful as an active manager in the long term, your strategy needs to be hard to implement. There need to be real frictions that prevent other managers from doing the same thing. And so successful managers in the long term need to have an investment strategy that really requires courage of one convictions where you really have to go against certain frictions. The key example here for me um, is a patient active strategy. It's hard to be patient in an impatient world. Mm -hmm. Most investors in actively managed funds, they are looking at the performance of those funds regularly. And they may take money out and, or in, right? Depending on the recent performance. So if you are an active manager and you want to invest in stocks for three, five year periods, that requires real courage. That requires real strong convictions. The manager knows really well how to pick stocks that will do fine over five year periods. But even that manager may be wrong in the short term. Those stocks may go against the manager uh, in the next one year, two years, maybe even three years. Wait a minute. So you're telling me that those articles that come out in the publications that say year to date, active management, it's not working. You're trying to tell me that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Is that what you're suggesting? I'm afraid so, Steve. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So evaluating funds requires a longer horizon. Yeah. But, but that also depends on the strategy of the manager. The difficulty is that the more patient the manager is, the longer the investment horizon of the manager, the really the longer the time period you need to evaluate how well the manager is doing. If you look at the data, what you find is that most very high accuracy managers are not very patient. They um, own stocks for one, one and a half years, typically. On the other hand, most managers that are very patient, that own stocks for long periods of time, most of those managers don't have a high active share. Hmm. The more rare combination, rare because it's difficult, because it requires conviction, is to be both high active share and patient. That's rare because it's hard to do. Then finally, assuming that there are indeed long-term investment opportunities that only patient managers can, can take advantage of, because it's hard to do, because there's relatively few managers that are actually trying to be long-term and highly active, right? what we argue, what we find um, in our academic research is that those managers have tended to do the best uh, among the high active share managers. So the outperformance of high active share managers we found was concentrated among the subset of high active share managers that are also patient. That's a paper we published in the Journal of Financial Economics 
that's uh, one of the most, in my mind, uh, impactful, profound charts I've seen in any of your work. Even if you're a high active share and you're turning the portfolio over all the time, on average, those folks don't, they're not worth the fee that you're paying on average. And yet you see this one line that just kind of explodes out that manager that has this high active share that has these, these, I, 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 I use concentration. There's other ways to be active share, but let's call it concentrated low turnover managers. Is that a fair statement to say that's where the alpha lives? In my research, that's the strongest evidence I found for for long-term outperformance among high active share managers. Um, not 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 that I want to you know push back against you, Steve. But you can please, uh, oh please in, in do. That paper, please do. We didn't find that the high active share managers that were inpatient underperformed. Right. That to me, that's a key distinction. Right. So there's a lot of debate, um, and I that that's actually a wonderful thing. Right. There's a lot of debate about the evidence in some of my uh, papers. Um, I think what the debate is really about is how robust is the evidence that high exchange funds have outperformed. And I think that's very much depends on the time horizon and the subset of funds that you're looking at. If you only look at the last 10 years versus the last 30 years, for example. Right. But there's another result that I think is very robust, and that is the underperformance of low active share funds. So that, I think, is very robust and statistically quite strong. The result of outperformance of, of high active share funds is less robust. At the same time, there's also very little evidence, you know, especially statistically strong evidence over longer periods of time, that as a group, high active share funds have underperformed. Got it. So I want to talk about where people can actually find active share, because when you first published this paper, it was this thing that kind of people were interested in, but you couldn't find it everywhere. Um, where where do you get this statistic? Yeah, the easiest way to find active share numbers for US equity mutual funds is to go to our free website, activeshare.info. So on activeshare.info, which is a partnership with Touchdown Investments, for which I'm very grateful, we make our academic data, or our calculations of active share based on academic data, uh, available uh, for free, right, online. But also other measures related to how they invest. For example, uh, a measure of um, uh, of how much turnover there is in these funds o- over long periods of time, and measures of what cap size, where is um, is the money invested in the fund. That also helps, I think, investors to test whether or not the benchmark that the fund uh, is followed, to what extent that actually corresponds with the actual investment strategy of the fund. Got it. So the first time you released this research was in 2009. Over the years, you provided context about how active share has changed in the mutual fund industry over the last decades. Can you sort of paint that mosaic like were were, were managers higher active share in the 80s and 90s versus today is it less uh, how how has that picture changed over the last 30 40 years yeah so our data goes back to 1980 so if you look from 1980 to today i would say in, in high level summary there's two broad trends among us equity uh, actively managed funds and so if you look at the percentage of assets in the mutual fund industry in let's say funds with an active share of at least 80%, 80 
or at least 90%. Right? That has just decreased over time consistently since 1980. So fewer and fewer funds over time are, um, are really high active share funds. The other trend um, is about really low active share funds. So really low active share funds for US equity would be 60% or lower, for example. That was very uncommon in the 80s. Then in the mid-90s became quite suddenly quite popular. These become, you know, a lot of funds had low active share. And then over the last 10, 15 years, that has declined. Perhaps right, due to active share being more widely available. And that's funds only, not ETFs, right? That's right. So these trends are among the actively managed open-ended U.S. equity funds. Gotcha. Well, and I'm also curious if we just stick in the U.S., different cap structures. Is there more utility in large versus small or small versus large um, in thinking about active share as a tool? Great question. Yeah, this is something that um, I wish we had written more about in our original 2009 paper. The opportunity for the manager to have a high active share right, is much greater for small cap managers. Their benchmarks are much less concentrated and there are many more names to choose from. And so, you know, to give, to give you a bit of a rough sense of how I think about it, that 80% is a, is a really high active share for a large cap fund, but not for a mid and a small not cap. Right. But it's high for, let's say, small cap, you really have to start looking at 90, if not 95% active share, right, for a small cap fund. So we've covered, I think, pretty well three pillars that you talked about, which really were rooted in that that research years and years ago. What's what's some of the more recent research that you're working on and uh, finding interesting? So more recently, I've, I've written um, several papers that were published in the Financial Analyst Journal that were written for a much broader audience than my earlier work. One example is the, the paper where, where I introduced the Three Pillars Framework, where I summarized 10, 15 years of my academic research in that one paper. Another example is a paper we published in 2019 in the Analyst, Analyst, Analyst Journal, where we try to review 20 years of everyone's academic research on actively managed mutual funds. So think about that this is the paper where the three of us read over 500 papers so that you don't have to. <laughs> Thank you. We titled it Challenging the Conventional Wisdom on Active Management, a review of the past 20 years of academic literature on actively managed funds. And so the title kind of gives it away. Our conclusions are that the academic literature over the last 20 years is a lot more positive about the value of active management than the conventional wisdom that originated about 20 years ago uh, has suggested. I've done a recent paper on actively managed bond funds. I've done a recent paper also published in the Financial Analyst Journal on separate accounts. What we found is that among separate accounts with a high active share, there was strong positive performance persistence. And finally, too many papers, I'm sorry. But finally, <laughs> uh, we have a recent paper that we're going to make uh, publicly available over the next couple of weeks or so, we hope, uh, on ESG. So how active are managers when it comes to ESG? We introduce a measure mm -hmm. called active ESG share that tries to measure that. So a couple things there. One, it, it, we at Touchstone have summarized a lot of Dr. Kramer's work. So we have 
publications and info that we can send you. But also, if you want a copy of anything, any of his work, direct work that he's produced, reach out to us. We covered a lot of ground today and really, really appreciate your time, your partnership with Touchstone. Love talking with you. Maybe let's sum everything up here. If you were to take a step back and just talk about the broad conclusions of your research, just at the high level, how would you summarize that up for folks? Yeah, the broad summary, I would say, is that ActiShare is a helpful tool to quickly assess how much security selection the fund is, is doing. And then I related it to the three pillars framework of scale, conviction, and opportunity. And we talked there about patient approach with high ActiShare as a strategy that requires strong conviction and managers need the opportunity. In terms of performance, the key result is that low ActiShare funds that are not very inexpensive, uh, they generally have underperformed. Among the high ActiShare managers, we don't find strong evidence for underperformance as a group. We even find for high ActiShare managers that have been very patient, we have found some evidence that they, uh, that they, out, that they, that they have significantly outperformed. Excellent. Well, uh, thanks so much to our guest, Dr. Martin Kramers. We'll be right back with our Costanza Corner. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to the Costanza Corner, where we love to end the show on a high note. Steve. I got a good one. I'm going to tell you right up front. This is good. Okay. I know you, I could tell by the, the timber of your voice that you were really <laughs> amped for this one. So, so I, I'm, I'm here. So I was, I was down at a conference in Santa Barbara, uh, a, a specific firms conference. Uh, it was at uh, the Ritz in Santa Barbara, if you, if anybody's ever been there. And Sick, humble brag. Yeah. Well, listen, it's not like I was there hanging out with my posse. It was a conference that I was invited to. So I got, bottom line is I got a discounted hotel room. Uh, anyways, uh, I kept running into uh, someone who had been on Seinfeld amongst many other things, but this is the Costanza Corner and this is going to be about George Costanza. I kept running into John Voigt. Remember John Voigt? Oh. You know John Voigt? <laughs> the pencil. Is he the original pencil? This this is this is where I'm going to go with this. So what was really funny about this is it's not like oh I saw him in passing once. He appeared to be just hanging out at the Ritz a lot. Like I saw him every day. I don't know why. I'm not suggesting he just spends his days walking around the Ritz. All I can tell you is over multiple days I kept running into John Voight. And after oh, I wait, kept, wait. Like, yeah. like the episode. Costanza was sold a bill of goods that it may That's or may right. not have actually been him. What was it him? Did you have other people? Do we have corroborating testimony that this <laughs> was in fact him? Yes. And the, the episode you're referring to is George buys this car that's kind of out of character. And then Jerry asked him, well, why? And it's because the the, the salesperson said it was John Boyd's car, right? And so that's the whole episode. And it turns and out found that- a it, pencil in the glove compartment. Right. Uh, we had tooth marks on it. So they took it to a dentist. Because yeah, like, ter- turns out it might not have been John Boyd's car, but they had this pencil. So that's exactly right. So when I, I saw him these bunch of times- the only thing I kept thinking of, and it was making me crack up, was, you know, can I give him a pencil to bite on? That's what I literally thought, right? Now, so here's what Please happened. tell me you did this. That's a wonderful idea. I found a pencil. I could there Pencils aren't easy to find. There's not pencils <laughs> yeah. lying around. I legit <laughs> found a pencil. And I got to tell you, I chickened out. Oh, my God. Now, here's what Are makes it. Are you serious? Here's what makes it even worse, that I chickened out. 
Ah. On the la- I was laughing so hard I wanted to see the episode. So what I what I did was I just went on, yeah, I don't know if there's the last night I was there. I just Googled John Voigt and Pencil because I just wanted to see that Seinfeld clip. Well, turns out people bring him pencils all the time. If you go on the internet and you do John Voigt pencil, you will see him with fans. And he's doing it. And he has pencils in his everyone does this for him. To him. Everyone does. So I ruined it. I, I should have had a better Steve story. Steve I, I screwed am, up. I'm mad at you. <laughs> I am officially, I put it on the docket. I am mad at you. Uh, you are in the podcasting doghouse. I can't believe you didn't do that. I know. I know. I screwed up, but I did laugh really hard because. That's bushly. I think the funniest I ever have laughed at Seinfeld is that episode where. Where, where Jerry goes into the glove compartment and finds out, wait, John, John has an H in his name. John doesn't spell his name for it. <laughs> Jerry goes, sometimes I spell my name with a G or an I. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, that's my Costanza Corner. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next time. Thanks, y'all. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. ActiveShare measures the percentage of the fund's holdings that differ from those of the benchmark. It is calculated by taking the sum of the absolute difference between all of the holdings and weights in the portfolio and those of the benchmark holdings and weights, and dividing the results by two. Index performance is not indicative of fund performance. Investing in an index is not possible. Active share is not a performance measurement. Tracking error is a measure of financial performance that determines the difference between the return fluctuations of an investment portfolio and the return fluctuations of a chosen benchmark. Alpha is a portion of a fund's total return that is unique to that fund and independent of movements in the benchmark. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. This commentary is for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Touchstone Securities, Inc. has partnered with Professor Martin Kremers to provide consulting services. Touchstone and Professor Kremers are independent of each other.